Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Persistence is one of the keys to any sort of success. Trust me, many of the people you admire have been clobbered at one time or another on the way to the top. But successful people get up every day and fight through adversity. They are not easily deterred. Robert Risco didn't take it personally when his art portfolio was repeatedly rejected by the editors of Interview Magazine. Sure, he was discouraged, but success was important to him. He was persistent. At the time, he was just another struggling New York restaurant worker, dreaming of somehow turning his particular talent into a livelihood. Instead of giving up, Risco kept perfecting his craft, one brush stroke at a time, and kept searching for the right door to his future. In time, he learned that the password was Andy Warhol and that Diana Ross was his ticket to the big party. Mentored by the legendary Warhol, Risco employed a bold retro airbrush style deeply influenced by the masters of cubism. In an increasingly celebrity-crazed culture, he was seeking truth in his own way, turning icons into real people. His artwork became a fixture of magazines including Vanity Fair and The New Yorker. Join us for a lively conversation about the creative process and the pursuit of success with a guy who grew up in Pittsburgh and just wanted a house and a yard and a car and yet wound up writing the zeitgeist to become one of the most celebrated caricature artists of the modern age. All because he refused to take no for an answer. I'm a really big gardener, and my backyard sort of looks like a city park. It's very uh, organized, and, you know, I've got specimens and things. And, you know, I do... 
and have always loved the aesthetic of West Coast. I've loved mid-century uh, design, and I keep meaning to like go out to Palm Springs because everyone tells me I would love it with the graphic shapes and sweeping lines, but I realized that I don't think I would like it in the end because living things require water and you need the moisture, and I think I would grow bored of cactus. You know, living on Mars all the time. Uh, you know, I when I was younger, I thought it was exotic, but I think it's only because I grew up in the East Coast. Now, are you inspired by landscapes? Uh, actually, the thing that inspired me most all my life is music. Uh, landscapes do inspire me, but music, I think, is at the core of it. I, I always think that music and voice are the most immediate... Uh, I don't know if you would call it an art form, form of expression that connects with people the most. So why did you become a, an artist? Because I had the talent for it. Because even at five years old, uh, I'm good with my hands. I had one of those DNA tests uh, when they started doing them. National Geographic did a thing where you, you know, swathed the inside of your mouth. And they told me that I was from the earliest European, Caucasian men that use tools in primitive times. So I think that that hasn't changed. And my... So you can go out and kill a woolly mammoth if we have any problems? I probably could, even though I am squeamish of killing. I've got a cat now at my house that comes around and brings mice and eats them right in front of me. And it does sort of make me squeamish. But I think if I had to, uh, I would be able to do that. Yeah, I would be. So let's talk about a little bit about your early influences. You grew up in Pittsburgh, right? Outside of Pittsburgh in a small steel town, yes. What was that like? Well, let's see. What was it like? It was a little bit like, have you seen the movie Deer Hunter? Yes. It was kind of like that, uh, you know, and it was uh, when I was little, the Vietnam War was on and we got Life magazine every week and there were these photo spreads of black and white pictures of dead uh, Vietnam vets in the mud and it scared the shit out of me. And uh, guys would, you know, the weddings were at the Sons of Italy Hall, and it was very much like the wedding that was in the Deer Hunter, and would go off and then come back all wacky and not talk about it. And uh, But the good times were uh, that it was a lot of mills, a lot of working class people, and they were making $25 an hour in the 60s. Driving around in, you know, GTOs and Mustang convertibles, loud music, very raw. Motown was big. And it was a time for the working class to really uh, flourish. And the stars, uh, you know, on Ed Sullivan were, were, when you look at it now, we didn't call it, but it was like sort of a lefty entertainment movement. You had Barbara Streisand from Brooklyn, Diana Ross from the so-called ghetto of the Brewster housing projects. And the heroes were all working class. The neighboring town to mine was uh, Beaver Falls, which is where Joe Namath was from. So if you had a talent, you know, you could get out of that class or, you know, make a lot of money. Maybe you didn't get out of your class. But it was, it was a very exciting time. It was now, exciting time for designing cars, especially the early 60s. Uh, the other thing I'll add to that is there was a lot of violence. There were political riots. Kennedy was shot when I was in second grade, uh, Martin Luther King and RFK thereafter. So there, it was a time of huge change and some violence. You know, I've, I've known a lot of particularly sports figures from that area who, you know, they wanted to escape. They wanted to get out of Western PA. Yes. Did you want to, did you want to escape? I didn't know that I wanted to escape, actually. Um, I wanted to achieve at least what my parents 
had achieved, which is have a house and a home and a yard. And I did that in New York City, which is a feat, you know, to have a house outside the city. I mean, so I'm one of the few that could do that. Uh, there was a part of me that thought that I wanted to be really famous and probably rich so I would never have to work again and just go to parties and go on talk shows, go on the Merv Griffin show and the Mike Douglas show. And look, I'm on a talk show now, but, uh, you know, just to talk and be entertaining. And, you know, I thought that's what I wanted. I think as I got older and really got into what this profession is about, which is you know, much different when you're on the other side of the chorus line. You know, you make it look like entertainment, but you're actually doing a lot of hard work. Uh, I think that I do enjoy my privacy and I kind of enjoy that people don't recognize me by my physical being, you know, uh, that I'm kind of a little like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. And I like to step out. That's a gift, you know. <laughs> what? The, what, the, what is the fact, the fact that you, your work can be transcendent, but that you can be in the shadows a little bit. Do you think that's a gift? Yeah. Um, it was a challenging ride. It's like riding a wave, you know, because I've been to parties and I have to go to functions, you know, for business here and there. But there are people that have made many more appearances at Studio 54 and got to be physically, physically seen and known. Uh, but I just felt like I had to work all the time. I felt that my... But don't, but don't you think that that, that that is a good thing, that you can be... Now I do. Yeah. Now I do, yes. <laughs> now I do. Now I do. Um, but I have to say, you know, because I'm an observer of the people that live and thrive under the white hot spotlight, uh, there is a, still a fantasy that I have that most people, like, what would it be like to be like that famous, to like just give it all up? And just accept the fact that, you know, you can't walk out the door without everyone, there he is, you know, looking at you, you know, the uh, Kardashians of the world and all those people, like, what is that like? Um, I, I think it's a gift, but it's something that I worked at, something that I thought that my talent was not in my physical being anyway, even though uh, when I was in high school, I won Best Actor in high school. I've always, I've always experimented with all the other arts. I was always in choir. I always sang. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm the voice of Studio 54 Radio on Sirius XM. I was interviewed, and they said, you have a good voice. You have a good radio voice, too. But voice, like I said, has always been my second love, maybe my first love. I don't know, but it's just that no one ever said, oh, you could be a singer, because singing and marketing is is a whole other deal and you know who you are and I thought there are people that are more beautiful and I think singers today have to be physically appealing too not like back in the day when you had you know people that were just excellent singers but people always you know when I drew from the time I was five years old uh, people all around me said draw me draw me I always had draw me all my life since I was a child but people did not say, uh, you know, sing me that song. You know, like people, like I heard, uh, what is her name? Uh, not Joan Baez, Judy Collins. I heard her say once that when she was little, you know, she came from a crazy alcoholic family, but when she sang, it calmed everyone down. Well, when I drew, it was like having a magic wand to have a pencil in my hand that it got everyone focused and they were fascinated and couldn't believe it. And to me, it was just something that just came out. How of did me. that make you feel at that point? Special, special, you know, uh, that uh, I had something, you know, I was frail, I was a, 
very small, like little shoulders, a sensitive child who cried very easily. And when I had that, it was like I was elevated to something else. I used to have dreams that I could fly. And uh, I had this for a long time. And I think psychiatrists say something about that. But to me, what it was was, uh, you know, I dreamed that I was running down the street Kids were chasing me, and all of a sudden I start flying, and they were, hey, 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 you know, like waving up at me. And I really felt the sensation of flying. And I feel like, in a way, that's what this gift that I had was, uh, was to me. When I look at my early work, I've seen children who have drawn much better than I did, though. I mean, you know, I think, was I really that good? Maybe I could capture a likeness, but... There are children, and you know, when you look at like a Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo, like when they were children, I mean, they were already drafting things in a very expert way. We didn't have much of an art education then, so I, you know, a lot of my anatomical stuff was very off. My work was more loose, of course, when I was young. Yes, I wasn't afraid. And then I got rigid when I had to learn technique, and then I got more loose again. And I think I'm much more loose now. Even when I draw, because I do preliminary drawings, I will always start with drawings, even though I do work on the computer. I uh, always start with drawings, and my drawings are extremely loose. And sometimes I feel like, could I actually draw tight if I wanted to? I just don't want to, because especially you know, for people out there listening who know my work, you know, I want to capture the essence of a person. And a lot of it is psyching myself up to viewing that person beforehand, before I put pencil to paper. It's thinking about it and thinking like, what am I going for? When I put it down, I, I really only jot a few lines, uh, you know, for positioning of features or attitude or whatever. I don't get into heavy rendering. If I start rendering a lot, I feel like I have to start all over and walk away and, and do it all over again. If you've ever done, uh, have you ever had a crafts class? Have you ever done pottery on the wheel? No. Well, pottery on the wheel, I was never good at crafts either, but we had to take arts and crafts in high school. But when you do pottery on the wheel, you shake the clay into a ball and then you get that wheel going, you know, and uh, you pump it up, I think, on a pedal between your legs. And then you throw the wet clay in the center of the wheel and then you start shaping it. And if it's not in the center of the wheel, it will start to wobble and it will start to, you know, and I feel the same way about when I start uh, drawing that I have to get it right from the beginning because nothing is going to make it right if it's not centered, if it's not like anchored in, in the, uh, you know, in the feeling and the sensibility or the animation that I want. Did you grow up wanting to come to New York? I didn't even know what New York was. Uh, and no, because cities scared me. Uh, I wasn't really a fan of being in crowds of people. Like I said, I was kind of insecure. So the idea of going to a city, especially in New York, I, seriously, I didn't even know what it was. I mean, when I used to watch uh, TV shows with New York on it, uh, it just didn't register. I lived near Pittsburgh, so we would go into Pittsburgh, but it just seemed, uh, I don't know, it seemed, like I couldn't believe people lived in apartment buildings. We had a house and a yard, and to me that was just a normal thing. It was foreign to you. It was very foreign. The city was very foreign. I didn't identify with it. And my parents, 
when they got married, started out living in an apartment in town, and then they moved out to the house to raise a family. But my mother always portrayed living in town was awful, that you could hear your neighbors through the walls. There were cockroaches in the building, and there were things you couldn't get rid of, and, uh, you know, that we lived, you know, in a house with many rooms and, uh, and a yard. And to me, that's all I ever really wanted. We would get mail. Uh, and I remember like when it was junk mail, like from a magazine wanting, uh, you to subscribe that the address would be New York, New York. And that still haunts me to this day because I thought, what is that? New York, New York, you know, it just seemed odd that the city and the state, was the same name, and what is New York, New York? Uh, there was something very symmetrical about it, about the name, and that appealed to me. The geometry of the name of New York, New York. Now that's really interesting. Isn't that interesting? Well, I, I mean, you're making me think about it now, but I think it was the geometry and the order, and fast forward to the first time I came to New York, when I came to Manhattan and all the streets were on a grid, I loved it. Did you immediately, you know, some people take a while to take in New York. Some people hate New York. Some people immediately fall in love with New York. I think I was one of those people. I was one of those people too. When I first drove here, the first time I actually passed through New York, uh, when I was in high school, I had a friend who used to take us on uh, cliff climbing expeditions. This was in high school. And we went to upstate New York in New Paltz because there were cliffs up there. And we only drove through the Bronx and we, maybe passed through on a foggy day, like in the morning, uh, you know, and saw the Empire State Building go up and disappear into the fog. And that was interesting. But when we drove through the Bronx and I saw all these kind of generic uh, tall buildings that people lived in, that was not appealing to me. Uh, and I had a friend who was with us who said, it's like people living in ant farms. And that's kind of what I thought of it, uh, ant farms for people. And that was that. But the first time I came to New York to decide to live was uh, in 1976 when I moved here. I was up at the Cape and I was drawing caricaturists of tourists. And a friend of mine named Bobby London worked for National Lampoon Magazine. He was up there for the summer. And he told me that, you know, I was so good that I should go to New York and I could become the next Hirschfeld. And Herschel was like 75 years old, and he's like, he's not going to be around much longer. Uh, you know, the New York Times, he's the biggest theatrical caricatures. I didn't know who he was. So Bobby educated me to, uh, you know, these posters that he did of Laurel and Hardy and, you know, how he got the essence. And he said, you get the essence the same way and you could do that. So I had decided that I wanted to move to New York, and this was in 76. And like I said, I had only passed through it before that. But when... I was 19 and I came to New York, I left college and I just figured that, you know, college was not training me to be in the magazine world or, you know, I, I was off on a fine art tangent. I thought I was going to be a painter. Um, but when I came that fall and I saw New York and I had a friend from my hometown who was living on the Upper East Side on East 76 who said I could live with her until I found my own apartment, uh, I did love it. I did love it because I saw the streets in the grid formation with streets one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, all numbered. You could find your way around really easily. To me, that was heaven. That was heaven. It is New York, New York. 
You know, it's the same thing. I understood it by its name. And I think, you know, I struggled with this a lot because, uh, you know, I am a gardener and I always think of, uh, you know, the God-made world versus the man-made world. And I, you know, think that, you know, are, are we a, uh, you know, a cancer, or, you know, to the, to the world or are we uh, an adornment? And successful art I think should adorn nature in a way. It should work in harmony. Yet, um, I can't deny that I love, uh, you know, going back to the Greek civilization because I think the Asian civilizations were much more asymmetrical. Whereas the Greek civilizations, they decided that a square was the way to create order out of chaos, which is why the buildings are square formatted. When you came to New York in the 70s, obviously, uh, of all the great personalities in this city, you, oh, yeah. you became uh, uh, closely associated with one of those, Andy Warhol. Yes. How did you meet Andy? Well, uh, I'll just go back a little bit before. I hope I'm not rambling too much. But, you know, coming from Pittsburgh, he was a Pittsburgh hero. And, uh, you know, he was even in Life magazine, his Marilyn Monroe portraits. And I got it. I got it immediately because Sunday afternoons, they would always show Marilyn Monroe uh, reruns, you know, the movies on yeah. black and white TV. You know, I don't know how many times they showed General for Blondes. But... Uh, it just, you know, it was, it all happened just before my time, like a generation before me that, you know, the whole phenomena, like I said, I was a child in the sixties, but it made a profound influence, uh, on me aesthetically, especially the early sixties, uh, you know, the Kennedy era, that whole sense of style. Remember the sixties cars, the, the early sixties cars, how, you know, sort of boxy streamlined they were and, Saarinen tables and furniture and, uh, you know, the international style. Uh, so Warhol was the Pittsburgh hero, getting back to Warhol. So it was always on my mind that, you know, I would like to be the next Warhol. I wanted to be the next Walt Disney, you know. Uh, now that's a combination you don't hear all the time. Uh, don't you? To me, it's like just something that I take for granted, that like Disney and Warhol were like, you know, the same, really, in a way. Really? Yeah, I'll, I'll lump in Madonna and Michael Jackson with that, too. Okay. Because they are pop artists. They take the culture and spin it back in your face. And um, I guess Disney was, you know, he, was a, a, he wasn't an artist, but he, he was a, a supervisor of an art aesthetic and... Um, you know, had an idea of, of, of the, the way he wanted people to see the world. And I think Warhol kind of was the same. Um, what uh, fascinated you about, about Disney? Well, Disney, the fact that his, I mean, first of all, the animation, uh, you know, the bounce and stretch theory that he had, you know, about how many frames per second, to me, is still far superior than uh, digital animation, which I can't watch because everything moves in a very unnatural, robotic way. They haven't really gotten that down. Disney had that feeling that, like, you know, if there were, like, 30 frames per second, that the last two or three were either slower or longer just to uh, show a natural movement, uh, that you don't move in a, in a robotic rhythm. 
and uh, you know each of those cells was painted one by one. The colors that Disney uh, you know broke everything down to the palette, uh, along with Technicolor technology of the day. Uh, I had a friend who used to collect Technicolor films. He's not on this earth anymore, but uh, going to his house Friday nights to uh, watch like untouched, unopened Pinocchio <laughs> was amazing because even uh, Fantasia, Fantasia was a study in color palettes where, uh, you know, Disney knew that from like the impressionists, like shadows were blue or this or time of day. And, you know, and there was a whole palette of bright colors, uh, you know, that, that they did by hand. Today you have like digital cameras and sensors that pick up colors in non-color areas. But Disney had that all down. And the other thing about Technicolor film is if you watch a movie today and you're watching on a movie screen and you see a black screen, you're still seeing that as 70% gray because light is showing through. When you watch a Technicolor film, it was pitch black. So Night on Bull Mountain, uh, the last of the uh, Fantasia clips was all very dark, menacing imagery. And the whole palette was from like middle values down to pitch black. But you'll never get that even on DVD. Uh, the strength of that, you know, of, of that. So, I mean, what he got in color, like he took everything from every art form, the impressionist, the surrealist, the this and that, and he commercialized it. And uh, I appreciated that because... Uh, you know, I became a commercial artist because, you know, I started out as a fine artist, but I thought I want a bigger audience. I want, you know, people say, well, don't you want to do real work or have a show of your work? No, I wanted it to be in magazines. So thousands of people saw my work. And my idea was to push the boundaries of like, say, cubism, where I feel that great painting left off and combine it with the uh, element of doing a celebrity likeness so that people would understand you know, cubism a little more, like bring them closer to like a sophisticated mentality. And I think I did that actually. I think I really did. Uh, you know, I have a friend of mine who's an artist. And he says, you did do that. Like the way people dress today, you brought that back. Not that I created it, but for people and aesthetics to look at themselves more graphically. Uh, I think that the cell phone, uh, you know, the iPhone has definitely done that more. Again, is it a good thing? It is just what it is. I always loved the early, uh, you know, like Elvis Presley and Margaret movies, things like that, where people looked like, uh, they looked at themselves from head to toe and a silhouette was very important, you know, especially if you're designing a costume for a stage, it was about a silhouette. Because in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, uh, you know, people sat in a car and, you know, women got their hair done and they just looked at their hair and that was it. They didn't look at themselves really from head to toe. Maybe in my sister's generation, like in the 50s, but it got lost more in the late 60s and then it went to pot in the 70s. I just posted a picture of myself in my graduating class in 74 and I had like what I call the Prince Valiant haircut, you know, the, the two layer, you know, and people I think like, Don Winter had one just like <laughs> <laughs> The Prince Valiant. I mean, yeah. you know, what was it? It was about, you know, when you look back at the 70s, it doesn't photograph well at all. Now, why, how do you draw a line between that aesthetic okay. and who we were as a culture at that point? Let's see, wait, draw a line between. Are you, are you around my age? 
I'm 53. Okay, I'm older than you then, I'm 61. Uh, how do you draw a line between, this is a good question, but it's, it's the, the aesthetic of what you're talking about. Of the 70s? Of the 70s, and who we were as a culture. Oh, first of all, um, I would trade all the graphics and all the uh, cell phones and everything in for the aesthetic we had back then, because that was a very, very, uh, what is the movement? I want to say relax. It was a relaxed, carefree, uh, unselfconscious, uh, sensual episode in American culture. And I don't know if we're ever going to return to that. When I was in college, like in 74, like, I mean, first of all, it was about women burning their bras, not wearing makeup, men letting their hair grow out long, doing the opposite of everything that was done in conformity before then, working for the corporate world. People took off, you know, everything and just, you know, they wanted to live in communes. I didn't want to live in a commune. Uh, the closest I came was living in a co-ed art floor at Kent State University in my freshman year. Um, but it was an amazing, amazing time. We were in a recession. People didn't have money. And it was okay. I mean, okay, people were doing drugs. We were, like, smoking pot when we were young. But I think the same thing could happen without drugs. And it's a shame that when you look back on that, number one, it doesn't photograph well because you can't get the feeling what is lacking from the internet social media culture we have today is feeling you have no feeling i don't understand how people can find mates dogs anything online because you're only getting a feeling of the photograph and people have learned to be the you know directors of their own movies and photograph themselves in in lights, you know, or photograph a puppy playing, you know, you don't know if it's barking, you don't know what it smells like, you don't know if it's going to come to you when you call it. I mean, this is the scary thing, I think, about the society today. And the 70s, even, you know, the media even will look back at it and say, ha, 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 look at that hair, look at the styles, look at the bow tie, laugh, like, I can't believe we looked that silly. But we didn't care about the way we looked. I mean, that's the whole point of it. And I don't know if that could happen today because you'd be asking millennials to give up their cell phones, give up all forms of that social media communication, tell girls to not care about the way they look, you know, or guys, you know, and just hang out, go to a coffee bar, learn to connect with other people, not sit there on a cell phone in isolation, talking to each other through a device. It's frightening to me. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's like we draw a line on the culture. It's like I would go back to that. I would give up everything. I seriously would. Uh, it's we're living in a capitalistic society that demands that we have some money for healthcare when we get older. This is the only reason that I have stuff in my life today is because I thought I can make some money. And you know what? It's no good to be old without money in this country. You know, you're they'll say bye-bye to you, you know? So, so when it started happening for me, my career, and I saw that I could make some money, it was kind of like, 
I was like a hippie wannabe standing at the slot machine and the money was pouring out. And I said, I better take this, you know, uh, and, and, and your accountant says, you better invest this. You better buy something because you're just going to pay it all in taxes and have nothing. Oh, I better buy something. I don't like owning things. I really don't, you know, but you're sort of, you know, you have to if you start making money. Otherwise, uh, you're going to be sunk. So that culture, the Joni Mitchell, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, was fabulous. And it could be done without drugs, too, I believe. And you were going to tell me how you met Andy. Oh, yes. Okay. How I met Andy. So he was a hero and it was always uh, something on my bucket list. And, uh, you know, I've been doing caricatures of tourists up in uh, the Cape and in the Jersey Shore. And like, like I said, when I met Bobby, he said, you should go to New York and do this for magazines. Well, I had this fine art sort of background under my belt from college and I wanted to be a fine artist. So that's when I thought, you know, I moved to New York and I saw that New York at the time to me looked like an art deco civilization in ruins. It was a dusty old, you know, black and white, uh, dirty city. But people like Madonna, who's a year younger than me, came here. You know, we love the black and white film era, the Turner Classic movie aesthetic, and the uh, the, the uh, Radio City Music Hall, which was going to be torn down. You know, it was going to be torn down. They were showing, as a matter of fact, they were showing Disney films there and the Rockettes. But it was getting trashed from kids, little kids. You know, it was all beat up. It was all dirty. There was this Gotham City feel to it. Gotham City feel, yes. So I had this idea. I, I wasn't aware of any Vanity Fair early caricature artists or anything, but I just had this idea that I would combine the ability to do caricature with um, cubism because the city was a cubistic city to me. And immediately uh, I started working in airbrush. Uh, a lot of illustrators were working in airbrush, but they were doing very pillowy kind of airbrush pinup looking things. And I was of the school of doing... Uh, well, the purest school of painting was to work flatly and never give the illusion of 3D. That was the purest school of painting, and I always subscribed to that. So I said, I'm going to do airbrush and stencil, but I'm going to keep everything flat. So I was the New York illustrator in this wave of airbrush artists that were coming out at the time. And I went to Interview Magazine, uh, which was a big oversized black and white uh, tabloid on newsprint. Uh, to me, one of the most chic tabloid magazines ever, still to this day. And, uh, you know, Warhol's name, Andy Warhol's interview. And I went down to the factory on Union Square and I had a portfolio of celebrities that I had done in a black and white very hard edge. They almost looked like they were car ornaments. They looked very metallic. Uh, and I went there and I was shunned at the door. I was told that they would never use illustration in the magazine. It was a photo magazine that uh, people like Bianca Jagger would never approve this likeness that I did of her. And all of their celebrities have to have approval. All these things turned out to be false. Uh, during the, like that was probably 1976. In 77, I noticed that they had done four pages on a caricature artist. So they couldn't tell me that anymore because they found someone who did like some old retro style like Sardis and they featured it. So I was like, hmm, okay. So I just, you know, I was not going to be told no. So I went back again. 
I was told no at the door again. And then... You just show up at the door. That's what you did back then. That's what you did. You could walk right... You could you buzzed in down below, walked up. It was on the second floor. And uh, you walked in the first set of doors. But you didn't even get past the receptionist. Uh, there was no receptionist. And then I got in the first set of doors and you just talked to the receptionist. Yeah, you just got right in. It was like a big loft, you know, yeah. environment. And... You know, the funny thing is now, Andy had already been shot because they always say that, you know, he got very tight with the security once he was shot. I mean, he was he was shot, but it was still by today's standards. I mean, no, I mean, that was like I, I got in. I, it was like a sort of an easy in. So uh, I got in. I was told no a second time. And then I was like down in the dumps, was depressed. But I always carried around with me a business card and I had this black and white drawing of Diana Ross on it. And to me, Diana Ross was the symbol of how you can get out of your ghetto and become glamorous and fabulous, you know, to me. And, and I think to many The American people, art of reinvention. The American art of reinvention, totally. Barry Gordy was a genius. I mean, you know, what he did, and he always says it was like uh, cars on the assembly line, the way he turned out these people. And it was, uh, you know, to me, that was the inspiration. The music was the inspiration. The music was, you know, what I realize now was we were basically getting church. You know, we were getting church that was pasteurized and homogenized for the American public who had grown up like I grew up Catholic with Hail Mary, full of grace. You know, and people shy, you know, they wouldn't yeah. sing, you know, to like, you know, you see like black people expressing themselves and it's like, oh my God, I want some of that, you know? And uh, I think Motown was our church growing up, you know? So, so it was all of the above. And uh, Diana Ross, I think she was, uh, you know, she doesn't get the credit, but she was like before Oprah, before anyone, she was like the civil rights, uh, you know, Aretha Franklin was too, but music has a way of uh, bypassing everything, you know? Preachers, Martin Luther King, you know, you could always, you know, you know, put your shoulders up like I don't want to be preached at. But music has a way of penetrating the soul. So. Um, so anyway, I carried this business card around with me. And one afternoon, I mean, mind you, I had no money. I was working at a restaurant. I was probably a busboy at the time. I was 21. And. Uh, I went out with my brother, who was living in the city, on a hot summer day in June. We said, let's just take a day trip to Fire Island. Let's go out there and take the car ferry. Uh, not the car ferry, uh, the, uh, the train to the ferry and go to Fire Island for the day. And we were planning on coming back that day. So we went out and uh, we were on the beach and we were about to go home and there was a place called the Botel in Pines Fire Island. And there was a little placard there that said, uh, Andy Warhol will be here today signing copies of interview with Halston. <laughs> <laughs> so my brother said, you know, should we go back? And I says, you know what? No, I'm going to meet this guy. I said, I'm going to meet him and ask him in person if I can work for his magazine. So we stay there. I waited and you bought your copy of Interview Magazine and you stood in line to have it signed. And it was just very casual. Um, Bob Colicelli, who was a managing editor, was standing there. I didn't know him, but he wrote in his book, Holy Terror, that when they went there, it was kind of a disaster because Andy was at the end of his fame 
None of them wanted to go there. They didn't feel that the gay community even was interested in Andy. And Andy, uh, although now he's accepted as being gay, was kind of don't ask, don't tell. And he was actually more interested in uh, rich women's jewelry than uh, sex. And he was not into a left-wing uh, movement on civil rights. He was much more into the Republican, uh, you know, who's going to buy a portrait for a million dollars from me. Uh, that's what he said in his book. But to me, it was a life-changing event. To, to Andy and the crew, it was, it was kind of like a, a nuisance to have to go there. And so, so you actually had a conversation with him? and Well, what happened was, am I, am I too wordy? No, not at all. Oh, I thought, no. okay. Everybody is fascinated with their hanging on this, right? Now. Okay, okay, okay. I hope so, because uh, that's why I feel like artists shouldn't talk, because we're, we're ditzy. But so I'm standing in line. I pull my business card out. I had had some work published in some kind of like lower level magazines. And, uh, you know, while I was uh, working in the restaurant. So I uh, stood in line, it came my turn. Uh, he was standing there with Halston on one side and Roll Arena, who was a Studio 54 character. He looked like something like a Glinda from The Wizard of Oz. With like a, you know, like a dress that looked like he slept in and urinated in on roller skates. So he was called Roller Ray. He had a magic wand and he was like a fixture at uh, Studio 54. So he had pushed his way there to, because he thought he was a celebrity. Uh, he was a celebrity. Uh, sorry, Roller Arena. So anyway, he, um, he was there and, uh, you know, hi, Andy, hi, Andy, you know, wanting to sign the copy too. So uh, Andy was there very dry and he had a magic marker in his hand. And uh, he said, uh, who should I make this out to? And I said, Robert Risco. And I said, you may have seen my work. So he signs, you know, Robert signed the issue. And he was very slow, like he was on Thorazine or something. And I gave him this oversized business card and he looked at it. And he looked down at it and he went from that blank face to like a smile out of the corner of his mouth. And he said, I said, do you know who that is? And he said, yeah, it's Diana Ross. It looks exactly like her. And I says, well, I'd really like to work for your magazine. Can I work for your magazine? He said, oh, oh, sure, sure, sure. Talk to Bob. And it was Bob Colicello was ushering people in there. Talk, talk, talk to Bob. And I said, Where's Bob? Bob's over there. Uh, call Monday. And yeah, you could work for the magazine. So uh, when I was exiting, I saw Bob, who was frantic with, uh, you know, dealing with the people. And uh, he said, yes, call Monday. Call Monday. Now, I don't know if they remembered any of this. I, I really don't. But I called Monday and I said, uh, hi, I was with Andy on the weekend. I saw him on Fire Island and he said to call you to make an appointment for the art director to look at my portfolio. Like, OK, when do you want to come in? The door opened. It was like the Wizard of Oz. The you door. said the magic sentence. Andy. I was there with Andy. That he told, yeah, I did. I said the magic sentence. And anyone could have said that when you think about it. Like, I mean, I wasn't one for name dropping. There's a lot of people that do fake name drop. You know, even today, they were good you, friends. You, get, you do what you got to do to get in, right? Well, people do. But I'm, I was always so honest, and I still am honest. Like, I'll never say, like, oh, yeah, so-and-so was my good friend. You know, it's like, if you're my friend, you're my friend. It's like, I, I'm not, like, really a big name dropper. But I actually had the authenticity of, you know, that I really was. You know, so... Uh, Little did I know that I could have just said that, you know. So um, I got in. 
they looked at my portfolio, the art director had his underlings around, and they were kind of giving these, <laughs> oh, look, Farrah Fawcett, isn't that fabulous? You know, so they were, they were all kind of loving it. And before, you know, I got like, they would never accept this, that they were, they were loving it. So um, I think, you know, Andy may have remembered, but I think the thing is what they saw was, and what I didn't even know, was that it was reminiscent to early Vanity Fair of the 1920s and 30s. And you had no clue, right? I had no clue. I had no clue. No clue at all. It wasn't until like maybe a couple years later there was no Google, there was no online search engines. What I had to do was go to the New York Public Library where they had a picture file of pictures they collected. And I remember going in there and looking at caricature. And one day I came on a file of Coverubius, Miguel Coverubius, who was one of the big uh, caricature artists, and Paolo Goretto, who did these heads that were very geometric and cubistic. And I was like, oh my God, like these are fabulous. And this is sort of like what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to fast forward to that. I was mentioned, uh, Vanity Fair had seen a movement going around. They, they saw me, they saw Philip Burke at Rolling Stone, or at the Village Voice. And this is the new Vanity Fair. The new Vanity Fair. They decided to resurrect themselves. They saw Annie Leibovitz at Rolling Stone, and they saw a return to glamour. So they decided to resurrect the magazine, and they called me in. The art director was Via Feitler. I was put in the prototype issue with a caricature of Diana Ross that I had that they you know, sort of like loosely attributed to uh, Dream Girls. They said, Robert Risco did this, you know, based on Dream Girls, you know, that was new on Broadway at the time. But they used a, a color drawing of Diana that I did. And uh, so uh, the point that I wanted to make, I was this return to glamour that Vanity Fair started. Oh, that Andy, uh, they saw this. And I think that Interview at the time wanted to be that, Vanity Fair, so they got scared. I'm actually mentioned in the Warhol Diaries. Uh, it says we have to get Risco on a cover fast because I had been doing big full page inside pieces. They said we have to get him on the cover fast because Vanity Fair is trying to steal all our artists. And when I saw that in the diaries, I was like, all our artists. I was the only one besides Richard Bernstein who did the covers. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? All our artists. But the point is. Again, I was young. I didn't really know any of this was happening. I was aware of Carubius. And the fantastic thing was that when I was in like the second issue of NFR, I think I did a, a Liz Taylor and Richard Burton drawing. Uh, Lloyd Ziff was the art director. He found out that Paolo Goretto was still alive, living in Monte Carlo. He wrote a letter. He said, who is Risco? He said, he reminds me of an old uh, futurist colleague, friend of mine named Ivo Pegnagio, who I looked up, who was a kind of a cubistic character because I feel like his soul was reincarnated into Robert Risco. <laughs> so, I mean, like, you know, all these things, I mean, it's, it's just, it, to me, it's like a dream because you're just influenced by things you don't think, you don't know, you know, and I look back now that I'm older, I'm like, oh, Yes, I was cherry-picked. I was, you know, like what they must have thought of me at the time, you know, but I was just kind of, uh, you know, picking up on the vibes. And I think that's what young people do. You're like sponges. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation.
explain to me, to, to those people who weren't around in the early 80s, what Vanity Fair, the new Vanity Fair, what it tapped into, the, the part of the zeitgeist that it tapped into. It was a force. Yes, it was a force, uh, but it took a little while to find itself. Uh, really, if you start from the 70s, where I say there was a lack of design consciousness, uh, you know, people were basically living in sandals and strappy uh, clothes. Uh, I will say the clothes at the time were only fitted in the crotch area. But that was the 70s. But the 80s, uh, you have to remember, like, you know, HIV came up in the early 80s. And, you know, this put a kind of a puritanistic end to the permissive society that we were living in. You know, people, but before that, to be fair to say, people were tired of getting STDs, uh, number one. They were tired of going to bars and, you know, looking for Mr. Good Bar lifestyle. Uh, it was the me generation and everybody was success and career oriented and self-gratification and pleasure seeking. So when Vanity Fair came, um, it was going to be about uh, more of an imperialistic society. And I was working for an interview at the time, and I remember that I had done a caricature of John or Ted Kennedy, and I brought it in, and Bob Calcello saw it, and he said, that's it, we're going to do four full pages called Primary Characters, and it were uh, Ted Kennedy, Jimmy Carter, uh, Ronald Reagan, and George Bush Sr. And there were whisperings about the office uh, of the factory that, you know, who was Andy supporting? Who was he endorsing? Who was he endorsing? And the answer was Reagan, no question about it. And again, I didn't understand a lot of this, but it was their Hollywood uh, personas. Uh, it was going back to imperialism. Uh, it was going back to ostentatiousness in that Republican way. Money. Um, it was going into a sort of a don't ask, don't tell, like a permissive society doesn't work. And, uh, and so when Vanity Fair came along, you know, I'm not Cy Newhouse. I don't know the politics the decisions that went by. I know the aesthetics. I know the, you know, the look of it. But what they were going for was a visual New Yorker magazine. They wanted to take something that had the intellect of the New Yorker, but also give you visual dessert. And in the very, very beginning, they did these black and white covers by Irving Penn because they took writers, people who weren't really known. Um, don't ask me names right now because I, I, I'm blanking. I'm at that age where I forget names. But it were people that were not known for their look, but with those heavy black and white, heavy shadowed Irving Penn portraits. And they thought that this would just be, you know, uh, like art, like like photographs you see at the Museum of Modern Art, you know, with people showing every wrinkle in their face and every pore and all that. Well, that did not go over at all. But they had about, like, I don't know if they even had a year's worth of issues that were that. And that was before Tina came in, right? Before Tina came in. Leo Lehrman, I think, was the overall editor. 
uh, Leo Lehrman was, uh, you know, from the past, but they were, they were sort of clueless because they were still caught up in corporate world. At least Interview Magazine was down on the street, you know, and the thing that they got wrong was that Andy knew was that even if you look at the Warhol films that were Paul Mauricio films, essentially, but during the 60s and 70s, even though everyone was loose and unselfconscious, Andy still loved Hollywood glamour and still had glamorous people, beautiful people, playing real parts. You know, people like Joe D'Alessandro, who looked like a Greek god, playing sleazy hustlers, you know, and, and you know, beautiful models playing, uh, you know, ordinary people. He was the only one doing that. But Vanity Fair didn't really get that. And I saw that happening. And I couldn't really say anything because I wasn't an editor. I wasn't in the decision-making process. But, you know, it was very corporate. There was a lot of fights. Uh, a weird thing that happened to me was I wanted to get out of the magazine world. And I answered an ad for photo retouching, which I had been doing all the inside black and white photo retouching uh, in Interview Magazine. Because with Airbrush, that was what I was doing for money uh, after I got out of restaurants. And... I answered an ad for a photo retoucher, ended up being a Condé Nast when all this was happening. So it was a weird another streak of fate. I was up there. Um, when you talk about the zeitgeist, I was also looking for a full-time job uh, and I got one, you know, and it ended up being on the third floor and Vanity Fair was on the fourth floor. And I had this reputation of being an interview. They couldn't believe that I wanted a real job uh, you know, I just wanted money and security, I guess. So, you know, I got this job and for the first time in my life, I had my own telephone and, and all that. And I, you know, in an all white fluorescent lit uh, office, you know, <laughs> and, and I, mean, I, I loved it. To me, it was exotic. It's like, you know, who was uh, down below was uh, Brooks Brothers. And to me, I had to get a re-education because I had never, I hadn't grown up in classic, like what you're wearing, like a blue blazer, you know, like what is blue blazers and khakis? You know, I, I, I had to learn all this stuff. I grew up in bell bottoms and, you know, and paisley shirts. So, um, so for me, you know, to be an artist and I was always a wacky dresser and, you know, hippie wannabe to go to something that looked corporate to me was like, I kind of love that idea. And I still love the idea of like, you know, downplaying yourself and, and having your expression be in your work. So, um, so the zeitgeist was a return to, uh, you know, think of the Reagans, think of the Reagans and Ron Reagan Jr. got married to his fellow ballerina dancer, uh, Dorian, and she got a job at interview magazine. She, you know, and again, I don't know what the politics of that were, but somehow like, uh, you know, Andy and the Reagans in Hollywood and Bob Pelcello has been doing several books on Nancy Reagan so there was some sort of connection with the Reagans there maybe there's some like evil plot I don't know but but somehow you know Dory Reagan got a job redacting tapes Ron Reagan got married did he want to look like he's you know the family values of the Reagans you know because they wanted to represent the Ozzy and Harriet of the uh, you know go a return to the 50s I think of it also this way the 80s style was a serious reaction. Shoulder pads came back in for men and women. It was all about structured clothes, all about MTV, the visuals. Singers had to look good. Um, I can't say that I didn't love it because I did. My visual sense did love it, you know. And um, did did once we changed into that from mm -hmm. the seventies, did that influence the way you worked? 
it affirmed the way I worked. It uh, it affirmed it that I wasn't uh, you know that I wasn't just some weird avant garde artist. And when Vanity Fair started using me, that was the seal of approval. That's when my career soared because I had been working for Interview Magazine. I had gotten a cover, but I was still considered avant garde downtown. I went to New York Magazine and I remember them saying, you know, everyone loved my work, but I was like the poor thing that's, you know, he's so talented, but he's not getting anywhere. Vanity Fair changed all of that. After all, if you worked for Cy Newhouse in those days, you were very corporate. You were, that was, that was establishment Manhattan. It was, but it wasn't time life. It wasn't the time group. Right. Time magazine, all of Time's magazines were like, when you think of time, people, uh, they all had um, reasons to be, raison d'etre, right? They all had, like, it was because time, it's a time capsule. People were about people. Condé Nast magazines are a little bit neurotic because they never really could put the finger on what they were. Vogue was style. It was something in the air. You had to either sense it. It was like having a sixth sense and you had to know like what the fashion was. So that's why Vanity Fair in the beginning really struggled for an identity. It didn't know what it wanted to be. It was a lot of trial and error. But when it was sealed was when this award-winning team of art directors that had, you know, for their covers at New York Times Magazine. So, you know, Condé Nast throws money at you and all of a sudden they buy you. So they went over there and they were good. They knew the power of the image, the power of the single full page image with very little type placement. And they knew what was beautiful. They knew about the feeling of the photograph. Uh, it didn't, it wasn't just graphic. It had to be a feeling. Of course, you had, um, what's his name? Alexander Lieberman uh, overseeing it all, which was good and bad. Uh, Alexander Lieberman used to take layouts and would work so hard on drawings and layouts and they'd take him up to his house upstate or in Connecticut or wherever it was and he would rip them all up and repaste them and cut them, you know, and, and you know, so it was like, don't get too attached to your work. It's not that precious. Kind of like the devil wears Prada. It was um, exactly like yeah. that. It was exactly like that. And I had my boot camp because the thing about working at the factory was Andy hired people who were genius and you just knew that you were working for Andy and you had to be as genius as possible. And I would stay up all night, days on end, trying to please Andy, bringing in something that I knew was genius. Uh, that was not the case at Vanity Fair. At Vanity Fair, it was like you, you did that and you still had your drawings ripped up and you had to go in a different direction. But because I was a photo retoucher and because I had done that for so long, I felt that, okay, why can I do this with a photograph? It's someone else's work. They say, take the arm out and put it here or take all these wrinkles out. And I have no problem just doing that. Why can't I do that with my drawings? And I made a decision at that point to say, go back to Motown and Barry Gordy. The groups were always better than the individual stars. They were always better. The group effort and having someone outside yourself that you trust who's able to edit raw talent, it can be more powerful. And I said, I've done that. Now I'm going to do this. It's a group effort. 
you have talented art directors, you know, and uh, they will direct you. And just, it was blind faith. And I did a whole series in the front called Fanfare, where they would, uh, you know, it was like the opening section. And those were all uh, compromised, but people remember those and they love them, you know, and I was amazed. I thought it's not really my best, most genius work. It's not fine art like I was doing at interview, but people love them. What yeah. was the first one that you that you really connect, connected and you thought you heard about it and people were talking about it? And oh my God, my very first one. Oh my God, that's that's challenging to remember. But I do remember, let's see, I can't remember my first one, but I remember doing one with Socialite in Texas, Lynn Wyatt, on a as a rhinestone cowgirl on a horse lassoing uh Placido Domingo. And to me, it was like cartoony, you yeah. know, but loved. It was loved. I did another one with a socialite Nan Kempner. I don't know if you know who she was, and I forget who she was married to, but she was one of those friends of Nancy Kissinger women. She passed away, but she was a fashion icon. She had a face of a dog, and she knew it, and she capitalized on it. She always said that, like, uh, they always said I wasn't going to be a great beauty, you know, but she was thin and she wore fashion like those Upper East Side socialites. Did her with Nancy Reagan because they were both on the committee for uh, the New York Ballet and she bought that from me and she, she wanted to give it to Nancy Reagan as, an, as a present and she invited me up to her. She showed up in a bathrobe, like practically undressed. I, I don't know if she thought that I was going to, again, I was very naive, you know, like walk <laughs> into her house. It was covered with like botanical prints and threadbare oriental rugs everywhere and she was going on and on and people were calling her. It was something out of a, a uh, what is her name? The old comedian who did parodies of other like women. She would talk like this. The Italian lesson was her famous skit. You know, oh, Jerry Zipkin is calling me now. What do you want? Jerry? Oh, he hates this one. Oh, we're going to be on page six. Uh, you know, and then in between talking, and then she'd get off the phone. I can't stand him, you know. And uh, so anyway, I spent the afternoon with her. Um, but again, she loved it. And I just didn't think it was one of my best pieces of work, you know, but she loved it. And uh, so, you know, I learned to detach from my work and, uh, you know, think, maybe it's better. Maybe their, their eyes are better because... Yeah, no, that's an important distinction. It is. Because you're saying, because most artists are not able to do that. You think not? You think not? Oh, well, I should say a lot of artists that I have known are, True. Not, are not able to do that. Okay. So, um, because some of them would say, well, you're selling out or you're... you're yes, they would. So, where do you come down on that? You, your, your point is that you're very Gordy... Uh, analogy is good. It is the very great thing. Yeah. I don't think it's selling out at all because I think my taste may be shit. I mean, uh, listen, I've tried like writing children's books. I've tried like just playing on my own, like doing these things. My humor borders on, I don't even know how dark you could call it. I mean, all I can tell you is Alan Ball and Six Feet Under, I, I love I love very dark things. Dark humor makes me howl. Uh, Joan Rivers was like the, probably the only person that could make me howl and laugh. And she got away with it because she was a woman. But uh, And her delivery was she had impeccable timing. But some of the things she said, I mean, like, you know, Liz Taylor, she's so fat, you know, she puts mayonnaise on an aspirin before she swallows it. You know, and so, I mean, like, that kind of thing. Like, if you said it, like, 
Uh, Elizabeth Taylor puts mayonnaise on an aspirin before she eats it. You know, it, it depends on how you say it and how you deliver it. That's everything, right? It's everything. And Joan Rivers, I always felt, was a caricaturist in words. She could set it up and she could do that. But uh, I didn't know her. I now know, you know, one of her best friends. And, you know, and I know she collected drawings that I did of her. And I'm sorry that I didn't really get to meet her. But I have a feeling that... She could have been as dark as I was, you know, and get into like, you know, depressive moments. I mean, like I'm a Joni Mitchell fan. I love the darker shades that I was talking about, like Night on Bull Mountain. And they say comedians, you know, the other side of it is I can be very dark, you know, and, uh, you know, friends of me who are lighter, most of them are because, you know, they keep you out of, you know, will keep you out of it. But I don't mind it. Like, I, I'm not like uh, dark suicidal. I just find really dark things, people's personal motivations, and, you know, all that very interesting. So what, what motivates you? What motivates me now is, now that I'm older, now that I see that, you know, I have this reputation, is being a seeker of truth uh, still. You know, that my work, I don't make people into icons. I make icons into people. I bring them down a notch. Do I think that I'm still selling out and I'm really sort of like praising famous people who might be monsters. Uh, you know, I had a friend who was a fashion designer, Willie Smith. He said, what you do is genius because you take these monsters and make them into likable people. And I think, oh my God. So am I fooling myself? Am I really making these monsters into likable people? And I shouldn't be doing that. You know, I shouldn't be like, you know, I should be like, much more, uh, you know, left wing, you know, like be a caricaturist who is just constantly like tearing people down. But I don't think so. I think that I think that I still have that place in high society where uh, where I bring people down a little bit. And in America, that is needed because you have that more in England. It, I've done a lot of work for British magazines and they love caricature. And they can appreciate the humanity of a person as well as their iconic image. But in America, we have this plasticine look about like famous people that they should just be looking like their airbrushed iconic thing and we shouldn't see their humanity. I'm not reality show gutter level uh, humor. I'm uh, more, I guess what I try to do is just an accurate impersonation. I see myself as an impersonator that like if it's right, People will laugh and say, oh, yeah, that is exactly how they look or act or feel. And, you know, and in that way, you can't really get into a person's insides by, you know, because you're not that person. So you can't judge them. But if you imitate their outsides, you may know a little bit how they feel. So what is it that you want people to take away from a typical Risco caricature? Uh, I guess when people say he, you nailed it. You know, you nailed it. Uh, it means I got the impersonation right. Like I got them. Like I just did one of Lindsey Graham. You know, you nailed it. You know, because uh, it's just something in me. Why do I do it? It's because ever since I was five years old, I see a person's, the lines of their face. I'm like, don't you see what I see? Don't you see it? And then when I draw, people say, oh, yeah, it does look like that. I was like, well, 
aren't you seeing that? It's kind of like the uh, Twilight Zone episode of uh, where Ellie Mae Clampett, the actress Donna Douglas, was the beautiful person in the world of ugly. Was like, well, didn't you see that they were all like looking like that? Uh, there's also that other other movie, They uh, They Live. You put on the glasses. You never saw that movie. I don't think I saw that. Oh my god, you have to see that movie. It's also a cult movie. It's called They Live, and. People put on these sort of x-ray glasses and they look up at billboard signs and all of a sudden the billboard turns into buy this clothing or they look at a politician and they the people that are the corrupt people have these skull alien faces and, uh, you know, the other real people. It's very like much what I'm talking about, the left wing, right wing. And a lot of people who love that movie get it. They live, see it. And so there's a guy who... Uh, goes with him, you know, automatic rifle with his friends and they try to kill all these people and recognize them and they realize something in the end and I forget what kills them. But but basically, um, I've always felt that I have x-ray eyes. I see too much. Uh, sometimes I would just wear tinted glasses because I feel like I don't want people to see what I see, you know, And but I put it on paper. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe I'm mentally ill and it's like a coping mechanism. But if people say you nailed it, or that's what I see, it's affirming to me that I'm not crazy. Are you looking for one flaw to accentuate? Are you looking for one detail to accentuate? What is it? How would you explain it? No, it's not one flaw. People, that's the myth about, and I always got that growing up, that, oh yes, caricature is where you take the most pronounced feature of a person and you exaggerate it. It's not that, because first of all, if you just exaggerate one feature, everything else is out of place. It's like rearranging furniture. You have to rearrange the whole thing. So if you make the one, uh, the nose bigger, the face is smaller. Uh, the same reason I don't believe in plastic surgery that much, because basically, uh, you know, things are meant to be, once you start, you know, people that get into that have to start, you know, moving the whole living room around because... Uh, and then you age with it, you know, so then your face gets bigger, your nose is still small, like what are you going to do? So um, it's not one feature. It's, uh, and people say, you get the essence. Well, I guess that's what I'm going for is the total animation of the person. You want to make that person three-dimensional, right? Yeah, I want to animate them uh, somewhat. I don't want to say the way Pixar does animations of celebrities, uh, you know, Pixar... Pixar is still West Coast, and I think going back to the 70s illustration style, that's what the West Coast airbrush artists were doing, these pillowy kind of animations, and I'll call it like pinups, cartoony versions. My version is a little more dark, I think. I, I'm bordering Charles Adams in a way that, uh, you know, people can't escape. Uh, Hirschfeld touched on it, but he, he iced the cake with some costumes, you know, because he was a theatrical caricaturist. I don't really get into like, you know, cross hatching the costumes and the buttons and the this and that, where, you know, when Herschel made the face really small, like I get into, I don't even see what people wear. I, I'm not a really good fashion uh, aware person. I have to sort of focus on that if I want to learn what I should buy. But uh, I'm just, uh, you know, I sort of strip the person and look at, uh, you know, things, that, the way their face is structured, the anatomical things that are going to happen that DNA is going to suggest. And, you know, now that I'm older, I see even more, uh, you know, and I see more in myself, you know, things that, you know, I've become, you know, things that my mother has in her face that my uncles have that, you know, have grown. It's like, oh my God, like you can't just sit still and look the same, you know, like, 
something is happening in your body. And I find it fascinating. And I don't find it um, insulting. Uh, you know, people, people want to play down those things a lot of times in photographs. And most photographers, if they're doing a formal portrait, will, you know, uh, light out or, sh you know, take out a shadow of something that is, uh, you know, obvious about someone's structural thing, which makes it very hard for me to work. Thank God for the internet and videos that I can see people moving around at different angles. Right. Okay. That brings up my next question. Let's talk about process here. Okay. Uh, you get an assignment to do some well-known person. What do you do to start? Oh, the first thing I do is get on Google. And uh, usually first I will go to videos, Google videos or straight to YouTube and I will type in that person because I want to see them moving around. I want to see them animated at all angles and uh, this and that. Then I will look at still photographs of them. I will look at their iconic photographs, you know, the, the photographs that, you know, because actually the iconic photographs, the photographs that go out as still images are still important because that's what the public thinks of them. You know, like if you Google Dolly Parton and you see her like moving around, you'll see the camera, maybe her performing 3D. But then when you see um, a still photo, usually straightforward, no shadows on the face, uh, eyes and mouth darkened, you'll see two dark nostrils and hair. That still is their icon, and people will relate to that. Uh, what I don't think was successful about Hirschfeld, uh, why he was New York Times and not uh, mainstream, was that he captured people in the lighting of a stage, which he said was influenced by sun-drenched, arid, Balinese uh, aesthetic because you had harsh shadows shining down on people's faces, much like a spotlight on a stage. So you saw the lines that were recessed in the sculptural aspect of a person's face. Now, that is essential for capturing the essence of the character. I mean, it is essential to know those things. You cannot go by a flat 2D front-on face-forward photograph. You just can't. And uh, so I look for those things and I draw those things. So my process is that I draw very anatomical sketches, uh, different angles, and I try to understand the workings uh, and try to bring in the personality of that person, what faces they would make, how they smile, does their mouth smile downwards, upwards, uh, do they try to light it out? Do they tr do women try to make up it out? Do they wear false eyelashes to counteract, uh, you know, the, the other thing that's going on to balance out the chin? Uh, you know, so, I mean, all these things are just like automatic. I mean, you know, I'm saying them in real time, but to me, it's like lightning speed in my brain. Like, you know, when I analyze someone, it's like that, 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 you know, and it's like down. And then I look at the still photograph, which is to me, like I said, the icing on the cake. I'm making the cake when I study them structurally, and then I ice the cake in the end. So it looks effortless. It's a lot of work. And so how long typically does it take you to get from? It depends because some people are easier than others. I mean, some people, for me, uh, everyone had their, um, Every illustrator, every caricaturist, I believe, has their favorite subjects. 
that coincide with their style. Uh, like a Stephen Brodner, you know, whose style is, you know, about capturing lots of folds and, you know, these are political characters, probably just loves when someone has like a lot of stuff going on in their face, you know, uh, because it's that much more to grab onto. Um, someone like Hirschfeld, he was good. I, I, he was good with everybody except he wasn't really good with pretty women who were very glamorous or black people, ethnic people. And uh, case in point, I remember his Diana Ross caricature like didn't really look like her, you know? And um, so I would say for me, uh, the hardest people are blondes. Really? Yeah, because my style is very strong. It's very graphic. And blondes, uh, I just had to draw Roseanne Arquette for Vanity Fair. And I was sweating bullets. I mean, still, to this day, I was sweating bullets because blondes are so soft. They're just so light on light. It's like butter on white bread. I mean, what do you draw? You know, what do you... So you're left with, with a person like Roseanne Arquette, you're left with her makeup. And, and a lot of female celebrities, singers or whatever, as they get more famous, go to blonde. And when you think of like a Marilyn Monroe, they go to blonde because they become a mime. Even Lucille Ball with her red hair, they become a mime. They become what their face is painted on. They're like clowns. And, uh, you know, I could think of, um, what's her name? The, um, oh, I can't think of her name now. But anyway, they all go to blonde because it bleaches out their... If you think of like an Ava Gardner, Ava Gardner was a more earthy Elizabeth Taylor. You know, she had the eyes and everything, but she also had the bone structure. She had, you know, all that. She was solid. But why did Elizabeth Taylor become the fashion icon? Because she was more whited out. Like she had no shadows on her face. So her and Marilyn at the same time, you know, they become... And Michael Jackson, like this is why he did that because it's like... When you see yourself in photographs all the time, you want to get rid of those shadows, like something that may be a defining aspect to your character that limits you to what people think about you. If you are a baby face, if you're just eyes, nostrils, and a mouth, and a blonde can be that. A blonde can be that. You know, they become a facial expression. And uh, they're all whited out. So Roseanne Arquette... Uh, you know, had been, uh, you know, she did a movie called Stigmata and she had a TV series where she played a psychic detective where she could see things in advance. And she didn't get her teeth done, which everyone today also gets their teeth done. So they have perfect teeth, no character there. And she has fangs, you know, she has fangs, her two front teeth push inward. So she was really good at cashing in on these kind of like, light blue outlined devilish eyes that were very cat-like and her fangs, you know, and I thought she had the most fabulous character. So I was very excited to get the job knowing she was a blonde, but she had the strong character. But when I did her and I presented the sketches into Vanity Fair, they were like, uh, she looks inhuman, you know, and I was like, well, so I was sweating bullets to get it back to something because now I noticed in her recent publicity picture, she doesn't smile. She doesn't show her teeth. So she almost looks like Melanie Griffith, you know? And uh, I was like, how am I gonna distinguish her from Melanie Griffith? Her face is rounder, she's very soft, but I somehow got it. I somehow, 
by doing the anatomical thing and you know the the icing on the cake thing I, I just I got it but but it's nerve-wracking I mean somehow I can't even explain how I did it but it takes longer so when you ask how long uh, some people I can get right away some people and uh, some people it will take me a few days some people it might even take me a week I mean I won't be working that whole week but I'll have to do it and if I don't have a deadline I will like just put it on the shelf and I'll come back to it and I'll look at it and it has to be like an immediate read because to me my work is only successful if it reads like a barcode scan you know where you it scans past your eyes and you go oh that's you know David so Bowie. so you want obviously you want you, anyone to see this to have an immediate reaction oh yeah Oh yeah, I definitely want that. I mean, so alongside with like, that, that is part of the he nailed it, you know, aspect yeah. that I want. I want them to have an immediate read. I want to have, I mean, my original goal was to bring things into, you know, a really far-fetched cubism, which my colleague David Cowles does, uh, more cubistic, more, uh, you know, but, but I didn't, working for Vanity Fair, uh, they just wouldn't have had that. Uh, you know, he could get away with it at Entertainment Weekly, and I give him credit for, like, you know, really making a living off of that. But I did, did I sell out by not sticking with, you know, cubism? Uh, I don't say I sold out, but I say that I can always go back to that. Like, I, if I felt that, uh, I even feel like my work is still a little avant-garde for most people. Most people today, we're living in a very photo oriented society. They want to see a photograph of someone. They don't even recognize a drawing. So, I mean, you know, it may never happen, but I feel like if, if I bring the mass consumer level of understanding from where my work is now to being the norm, I would push it further into cubism. And, you know, and when I can, I always do. Like if I get a job where I know I can push it, but I just feel like I have to keep my finger on the pulse. It's not selling out. It's that I want to, I don't want to alienate uh, where I grew up, you know, the people that I grew up with in Western Pennsylvania. You know, I want them to understand it. And they do, you know. And, and, and yet you've taken several very important risks here in your life, in your career. What, what's the important risk in your uh, success? Well, risk is the only way you ever get ahead. I mean, you will never get ahead by being safe. Uh, you have to take risks. I mean, you have to listen to what I call the still, small, quiet voice within. You know, it's not, oh my God, I gotta quit my job, I hate it. It's not that. And it's not, I better stay here because, you know, I may never find another job like this again. It's really a uh, still small, quiet voice within. Uh, you know, there was a time in my life, which was an all time low, where I lost someone very close to me. And I had a friend, uh, African American, who invited me to sing in the choir up on 145th Street with them. And to me, it was like, a dream because I was in such a state of grief. And, you know, again, going back to Motown being the church of our life, the history of all those singers was they started out in the church, you know, and I thought, this is the source. Like, it's almost like my lemons had been turned into lemonade and I was invited to sing in this choir. And I got like so good, I was doing solos and, and, and everything. And I was like, you know, one of the few white faces. Occasionally there were other ones that my friend Gregory Shepard would bring in who was the minister of music. But to me, it was one of the most enlightening. Uh, talk about, 
taking a risk. I mean, I thought little white boy, white man going up to Harlem by myself, like, is that dangerous? But I was so down. I thought like, what's the worst that can happen to me? Like the worst has already happened, you know, and I'm going to go up there. And it turned out to be like one of the best experiences of my life, career and everything aside. I mean, to go and be in that, uh, environment to be in really a garden of other singers like as one flower coming together as one talk about a group effort again there's the soloist but there's the group you know only a group can make that sound of the choir you know and uh, that's why and then the soloist depends on the group and so there was a lot of uh, that was to me like a pure sense of self-expression um I got off. What was the question? Was it about risk? Or we were talking it? about risk. Yeah, the importance it was about of risk. risk. Yeah. Well, uh, and that was just a personal fulfillment for me. So that was like, you know, a big risk. Was, was that something, did that scare you going up there, the possibility of, you know, not being able to do it? Um, oh, yeah. Failure. Does, does failure still scare, scare you? Um, yes. Yes, it scares me, but it doesn't dehabilitate me. It doesn't stop me from moving. It did when it was when I was younger. Uh, I let fear uh, scare me from taking action. Um, oh, but I'm going to get back to the still small, quiet voice within that guides you, uh, because the preacher up there at the time said that we know the voice of the master that the sheep are not passive. They know the voice of the master. You can hear other voices, but they won't go there. I can get like tears to my eyes. They won't go there. And I think the same thing, we all have what we call the conscience in ourselves. You know, and unfortunately uh, today, people are so distracted on cell phones and all that stuff that, that people aren't really in touch with those feelings, you know, and uh, getting very deep. Joni Mitchell had to go to the Saskatchewan to write an album, and people said she was crazy for doing it, but you know what? She survived. I mean, you know, you can get in touch with all those things that you feel, make decisions based on those feelings, and you will know the correct decision to make in your life. Uh, so uh, it is a risk, and there is fear, but Fear is the opposite of faith, and you have to have faith. And not faith that you will succeed, but faith that it is your destiny, and faith that whatever happens, you go to acceptance. Accept the outcome. At least you took the action. If you could go back and talk to that young boy who uh, was getting validation, from the family members, the friends who were coming up to him and talk to him. What would you tell him? Oh God, what would I say? I would say, my first thought was say, don't worry, there is hope for you. But I also had an ego and I did think that if I could just get to my situation, you know, that things were going to be good for me. Uh, so it's not like I needed that reassurance. I had, I had some um, self-confidence inside of all my insecurities that I was going to get hit. But what would I say to him? What I would say to him is, don't, 
don't take drugs. And, you know, in the 70s, I did experiment. You know, no, wait, listen, I can't even say that because you know what? There were things about taking LSD in college that I think changed my perception in life that I think were actually good. Really? Well, tell me about that. Uh, I just think that, uh, you know, they originally did uh, LSD uh, was for uh, getting people to overcome fears and, and bring things out. I had incredible awarenesses uh, when I was on What did that feel like? LSD. Incredibly freeing and liberating and enlightening. Uh, you know, I remember thinking one time, like, you know, we would do LSD for like four days in a row, three days in a row. I would always end up catching a cold or a flu at the end of it because you get so run down because you don't want to eat. But uh, I remember my mind was, it's like adding miracle Grow to a creative mind. And I remember thinking, and this is something that I'm going to tell you, I don't even know if you could understand, but but I remember thinking and dreaming of the age we're living in now. Like I sort of saw the future as being all, that people in the future would go in and be entertained by hooking themselves up to devices and being given like LSD and going on trips, much like Total Recall was, you know? And, and I think Steve Jobs and Apple and all those people, it was an invention out of people doing LSD. And when you think of like all the emoticons and the icons and all this stuff, uh, Sidebar, I think that a lot of commercials today are for housewives on uh, antidepressants because there's so many animated characters and cleaning supplies that I think that it it has to be that. It has to be that. So, uh, you know, uh, although I'm like clean of all that today, I always think like if I did LSD today, I wonder what I would think because I did see the future as being somewhat like what it is today, that it would be. You know, because, you know, we were listening to music, but we listened to it on big stereos. We didn't really, there were people that listened on headphones, but it was about going to rock concerts and, and uh, you know, the visuals. And even, uh, you know what the tiling uh, selection is when you see an image that's tiled, how it's like a repeat pattern. Right. On LSD, I saw things, and I don't know if everyone did. Uh, they would say, did you see patterns? But I would look at gravel and you would see it as if it were tiled like that. And I just think that had to have come out of someone's brain who was uh, tripping, you know, that was working for Apple that thought of that, you know, because it was very much an LSD uh, way of seeing things. Uh, The computer is an LSD. The robotic movements, uh, you know, a lot of that is. Am I sorry for that? Would I tell that child not to ever get involved with that? No, because I think that people like Mike Pence are like that. I think, like, you haven't lived... You know, you haven't really, really experienced the sensuality of the world, you know, of the earth. I mean, aside from those things, which could be a little frightening at times, there was a uh, connection to nature that you felt. Because doing LSD in nature versus doing in a city, like the man-made world versus the God-made world. The God-made world, uh, nature being like in western Pennsylvania, we would go out into the country, go to this place where there was an old water mill uh, and, uh, you know, look at the grass and look at the dew drops and like, you know, we had HD vision on LSD and, you know, I mean, it was just, and you were part of it. You were uh, this living thing, you know, it made you want to be a vegetarian. It made you want to, I mean, all those things are good things. They're not bad. So what would I tell to that little kid? I really don't know because I think my life was a process. I mean, there's nothing I would ever change. Uh, Sometimes I think I wish I had a better art education. Uh, but I might have been more structural, more academic if I had. So um, I had a lot of people telling me how great I was, and I look back and I'm thinking I wasn't that great. So, I mean, it was all meant to be. I mean, it was all, 
uh, telling a kid it's going to be okay. Uh, if I had someone to reassure me like that, then maybe I wouldn't have been as driven as I was. You know, um, I don't. And, and how much? How important was ambition in what you've done? Oh, a lot, a lot. Ambition was uh, a lot of it. It was ambition was the rocket fuel. You know, when rockets go up into space, they lose the bulk of their craft uh, in, you know, they drop it just to live in that capsule. But ambition is that, that force that gets you out of gravity into outer space. Um, and like I said, growing up, we had uh, role models, you know, that were rags to riches stories everywhere. Uh, and uh, the middle class was getting paid a lot of money. So the middle class was happy. If there were jobs now, I don't think there would be any kind of uh, struggles between minorities at all. I think if everybody was making money, it would be fine. You know, it's like, you know, once people, you know, the mills moved out and it's like, well, you know, blacks are getting ahead of us or this group is getting ahead of us, you know, because people are poor and they're struggling. And I just feel that, you know, they've been duped. So the thing about ambition is if we're living in an age where politicians come and really don't do anything for the middle class and people don't think that they can get ahead, that's a very bad thing. If people feel that they can get ahead uh, that and get out of their system by doing something, uh, then that's a, a great thing. I think it's always important to, uh, you know, shows like, you know, when you talk about ambition, I guess today you have shows like uh, American Idol, and, uh, you know, America's Got Talent and all those things. And I think that, you know, we had Ted Max Amateur Hour. Those shows are good in that they do show the boot camp that people have to go through in order to get somewhere. I just wish some of those people would get to more places or something. It, it almost seems like, and I hope it's not ever revealed that it's staged, because my fear is that these people got in there because they knew someone and, you know, like, how did they really get their spot? And, you know, the way they stage the people, uh, you know, why is it always that the last one ends up being the best one? You know, because it, it is a show and it has to be choreographed in a way. And I know that because when you work in the business, you become a little bit uh, sarcastic on these things. But maybe those things, these shows really are helping people in fueling ambition in that, you know, if they sing or work or, you know, dance or, you know, whatever that they can get ahead. Um, and yet it, it's coming along at the same time as you have this really narcissistic, self-absorbed uh, social media culture that, yes, in some ways is yes. anti-ambition. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, and it's interesting you brought that up. You're very smart and you're, you're following my train of thought. Uh, because I don't, I don't know about that. Like, if we had that, I don't think that would have been good. I think it was good to have nothing. Not all these toys and distractions and, that are narcissistic. And, and uh, I'll point out, like, one other thing. Like I said, we didn't have fax machines. We didn't have uh, any kind of answering service. We didn't even have a call holding or, you know, if you called someone, the line was busy. That was that. I stayed at home many a summer day uh, waiting for a magazine to call because, you know, uh, you know, my friends were going out like tanning themselves on the piers. And I was like at home saying no. I might. And I did get a call in a July from Time magazine when I was 20 and I got a job. So, I mean, there's something about that. These toys 
the iPhone, there was a movie, what was it called? It was about growing up in Brooklyn and how the TV ruined their Thanksgiving day. You've got the turkey. Do you know that, that movie, uh, Avalon, I think it was called? That was about the one in Baltimore. Was that Baltimore? Yeah, Baltimore. Yeah. Was that about you cut the turkey? I think that was, yeah. Okay. Barry Levinson. Yes. That movie, to me, was a very underrated movie on how important that showed what TV did to the culture and and families. How when the TV, all of a sudden people start eating in the living room and, you know, this, that, the other thing. So the TV, I have to admit, I was mesmerized by the TV when I was little. If you look at our home movies, my cousins were playing and acting silly and I was looking at the TV because I was fascinated. And New York, New York, I was fascinated with the world out there. I didn't really feel that I belonged. So in that way, I can't totally diss, uh, you know, that people are looking at a device rather than living at their life because I would be a hypocrite. But TV was more educational. You learned more things about culture. Uh, I don't think it was just the kaleidoscope, which is what it's become. Uh, there isn't one thing that's on TV for less than a second or less before it splits to something else. It's To me, today, TV and the phone is an HD kaleidoscope where images, colors, bits of information are being flashed into people's eyes at split-second timing, and people are trying to grasp onto it, and they're hypnotized by it, and they're addicted to it. What... TV was in the background of my growing up, like especially in a day where like in grade school, if I was sick and I stayed home from school, in the afternoons you would have some programs, but it was a black and white tube TV. The reception was bad. You would have uh, the afternoon matinee movie that showed like an old TCM type of movie. And those movies I still put on TCM because you had orchestras, you had music, you had composed music. It's soft, it's relaxing, it's in the background. It, you know, it was somewhat educational about lifestyles. It wasn't just a flashing sound bites in your head. And uh, it definitely wasn't HD. And also, movies held scenes for really long times before they cut. I mean, well, we weren't as impatient. <laughs> we weren't as impatient, no. But I mean, but part of the feeling, when you talk about feeling and how the computer doesn't uh, translate feeling. Early movies, when you think of a Twilight Zone or, a, you know, all those staged black and white movies, Playhouse 80 or whatever, those movies, they were actors on the stage and the stages were boxy sets, but it made you aware of the acting and the story, even sitcoms. You were aware of the acting and the story. They were plays that happened to be filmed. And early movies, uh, even in Hollywood, were plays that had to be filmed. The sets were obviously, you know, fake and dazzling, but there were long scenes. And because of that, you maintained a feeling that the actor had, how they held that feeling, how they could be in that moment with that person and a tear would come to their eye or they would laugh. And, you know, and that's what held your interest was the feeling not the impatience and the lack of feeling. So, so it's not that, I mean, we've become impatient because it's become less and less. But um, 
I'm still mesmerized by old movies and, and the feeling. I want the feeling. I, you know, I, when I watch a movie, I can't go to a movie today because I can't stand the split action editing. And I also can't stand the cell phone going off in the movie theater. Even a little blue light, if it's off, like going off, I can't stand rustling of popcorn, mute, you know, any of those sounds. I watch a movie here at home, and even if it's a B movie, I want to be totally engulfed in what the director had in mind as to the overall feeling of, you know, the script, the book turned movie, and, and what they were going for, and what I felt afterwards. I'm a very feeling-oriented person, even though my work is, you know, graphic, visual. How does that feel? To have achieved what you've achieved. Well, I feel very lucky. The first feeling is I feel very lucky. I feel like I can't believe that I actually sort of got over this hill. Uh, you know, I'm not mega rich, but I have a house and an apartment in New York City, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm not worried, you know, I have a little money in the bank. I mean, I am worried about, you know, the state of the future and the healthcare. Like, if I continue to live, uh, I don't think that I'm over and done with because magazines have sort of died out. I think there will always be another chapter. I proposed to someone that I, I'm surprised no one ever came to me to ask me to like animate a movie because I feel like I could do in a different way, you know, a Tim Burton thing. Like I, you know, like I said, I have this sort of dark perception, but it would be my own thing. Um, I personally, have started projects and have aborted, have aborted them just like uh, children's books because we're living in a PC world today where everything has to follow some sort of like overall agenda, you know, that's, that's out there. I've, uh, you know, been at book publishers that do children's books and, and it became immediately, uh, I became immediately aware that I'm still living in the Wizard of Oz, Cinderella, uh, you know, all those stories that we grew up with where the lesson was hard work will get you somewhere. You'll get to the ball, uh, you know, service oriented. Uh, there's no place like home. These are my values. Children's books today. I always tell people if the Wizard of Oz were done today, Dorothy would have had to kill the witch, slaughtered the <laughs> Wizard of Oz with a semi-automatic rifle. Uh, you know, had some of the munchkins, the maybe the evil monkeys, just come on her side and you know slaughter the the, the lefty mon monkeys and taken over you know the witch's castle and Oz and and turn it into a big you know. I mean, this is what kids today are all about. It, the book has to be empowering. It has to be empowering but in a way that is very selfish. It's not like service oriented. I still believe in a Cinderella. You know, I still believe that you will get to the ball. Like, and, and I did. I mean, I've worked very hard at my work and I've gone to the ball. And the thing is, you know, you will get your rewards and you'll get your rewards when they come. Thanks to Lane McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever. <laughs>